0: listening to a discussion born in the christian ghetto and we're recording very good welcome gentlemen so we're here to talk about the texas border situation um in part from a christian perspective but also broadly just politics for the sake of politics but um how to understand this crisis you know as christians and um I um, oh I think uh, somebody dropped out. Um, I uh, I was I really enjoyed the review you had Charles from uh, on Basel's parody, um, but I uh, I thought it would be good for you to to make that case yourself in regards to um, the the notion of. Our current immigration as an inversion of Christian charity, maybe just to get us kicked off and, and rolling that way.
1: Sure, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I recently reviewed a compilation of four, four and a half, because one of the fifth sermon that's probably what they call pseudo Basilian that is written by someone else. So four sermons of Saint Basil the Great, who lived in the fourth century and is one of the, the greatest saints, particularly in the Orthodox tradition, but is recognized as a saint by the Catholics. And so on. So this compilation of four sermons is unfortunately titled On Social Justice, which is not a term that that Basil used or that he would have had any truck whatsoever with the modern conception of social justice. But it's kind of a companion piece to a similar compilation of sermons that's also issued by St. Vladimir's Press by St. John Chrysostom, who's another contemporaneous preacher saint. And uh, and the focus in both these cases is on what is the duty of a Christian with respect to the distribution of wealth. Uh, the focus is on rich people or rich men in general. Because focuses on the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and Basil focuses on the probably the other parable, the people in this case actually story, not parable, that comes to mind from Scripture, which is Christ's admonition to the rich young man when asked if he would be perfect, what he should do, and the answer was follow my commandments, and having done that, the answer is, if you would be perfect, sell what you have and give it to the poor. So be, over time, and this is in this book, in the early church, there was a lot of discussion about what these, these parables and this story of Christ's life meant, ranging from, well, this is a council of perfection where the main focus should be not letting your mind, as a rich person, be occupied with focus on wealth, to St. Basil, who's kind of the extreme where he basically says that if you have more than anybody else, you're a thief and a murderer. I mean, it's a little bit extreme, not quite that close, but he basically says, con- he interprets this the story of Christ not as an admonition that if you really want to be perfect, you can do this for the maximum, but as a requirement of basic charity, love for your neighbor, which is, as we know, the second greatest commandment. And so Basil goes on in great length in the context of a famine in Caesarea, where he was a priest and later bishop, about how everybody who is rich, meaning he came from a rich background himself, he doesn't define rich, but he basically means anybody who has more than the desperately poor, need to give, Not if you fall short of everything, you're basically slapping Christ in the face and you're a loser. I mean, it's basically the way he puts it. These sermons are actually interesting because they're very contemporaneous in the sense that they they even have asides like he he has this aside at one point like why are so few people coming to listen to me and the people who are here are yawning what the hell basically <laughs> so you get, you know, it's almost two thousand years and you can kind of kind of get that sense but so this is a very interesting interesting thing but one of my points in my analysis of this was that Basil's poor were very different from our poor and I don't mean this. I'm hesitant to to go down this path somewhat because it's easy for people to then adopt the neocon heritage foundation approach of, well, you know, people need to get a job. And it's obviously not that that simple. But on the other hand, Basil goes on at great length about how, for example, he paints this picture of why the rich need to give because in a poor family, the father has to decide which of his children to sell to the slave market. <laughs> and that you, as a person not make, not preventing that from happening, are guilty which is a lot more powerful than you, the person who's not giving money to the person who gets a free $1,000 iPhone from the government just for being poor, are guilty. I mean, these things are, are not equivalent. And we're getting to the immigration part. One of the other points I made was that very frequently people think that admitting migrants and I use the term migrants not in its kind of leftist sense of an euphemism for illegal alien, but rather for migrant, meaning an an alien who is here, who has come here legally. Or yeah, alone.
2: I think migrant is the better term because whether they're legal or illegal is kind of irrelevant to the discussion.
1: Absolutely. It totally. I mean, it, il- certainly illegal have an easier mechanical path to move, But I mean, all people who are who should not be here or should be considered whether they should be allowed to be here. Um, So people assume that allowing migrants is charitable in St. Basil's sense, whereas the exact opposite is the case, because we have, we, you can expand this discussion at at some length, but basically we don't have equal obligations of charity to everybody all around the world. That would have been completely bizarre to Basil, who even giving charity to people in another city would have been completely bizarre. He meant that we owe charity to the people that we see in the streets, in Caesarea, in, in his case. And the, 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 those are our primary responsibility because they're our primary loves. And the idea that we would give money to uh, foreign countries, for example, to alleviate their, their problems would have been strange to him. And the idea that we would admit people from foreign countries who harm the people who are already here by depressing wages, taking tax dollars and so on, would have, he would have regarded as completely bizarre. So my point is that we have this distorted and twisted sense of what's charity uh, relative to what the church fathers would have said.
3: Charles, do you think that that's related to a more uh, found lesser in Protestant circles, but a uh, bishops and locality? In other words, that the church was local, more for uh, the charity was, was your... Literally, your who God brought into your sphere of influence or your your your, you know, uh, who you just encountered.
1: Well, I'm interpolating a little bit in the sense that Basil doesn't say any of those things that I just said, because they were outside of his ken. That is, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to kind of map some of his principles. As the most for lack of a better word, extreme advocate of extreme charity. St. Clement, for example, uh, who was another church father, who took a much more relaxed tack. And so uh, my, uh, it's hard for me to say, you know, these things are in a sense counterfactuals because St. Basil is not here, or rather yeah. he is here, he's not speaking to us directly. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, and so the, uh, it's an attempt to map onto current things, some of these principles.
0: Well, I think the point you made in the book review was was excellent, that the idea that we would show more compassion to the migrants than to our own people is an inversion of charity, actually. So we bring in these people who are then undermining the prosperity and lives of our people in the name of compassion. So we are being uncompassionate and harsh um, to our own people in the name of compassion for the migrant, for the outsider.
2: Well, and I think all this has to come back to 1 Timothy, where there's this admonition that if any man fails to provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever. So there's very, very clearly in Scripture this this idea of, of a primary responsibility, first to your family, then to your church, then to your broader community, before people who are, you know... Uh, Disconnected to you uh, by all the sort of unchosen bonds that are, are placed in your life, and I think at the root of this kind of telescopic charity problem is the sort of liberal assumption that unchosen bonds are arbitrary and therefore to be kind of torn down or ignored.
0: Well, and I yes, and but I also think the, the this this notion of like um, Kantian ethics that all ethical rules in order for them to be properly ethical have to be universal in other words they're applicable everywhere at all times and I think one of the points I want to make later um, will will revolve around this the fact that that the idea of a universal ethic is is mistaken um, and would be largely unrecognizable say in an earlier medieval church but maybe before we go foot deeper that we just have Josh maybe introduce and explain to us the situation in Texas on the ground and give us maybe a little bit of deeper understanding of kind of what's going on there? Thanks.
4: Yeah, I'll keep this relatively brief. Um, We could get into any number of of details around the situation, but um, I think that what's going on is something that you could call, it's akin to a a sovereignty contestation in some ways, but uh, there, there are sort of two different fronts right now as I see it. The first one is uh, this Texas law that was passed uh, about two weeks ago now called SB4, uh, this law tracks federal law with respect to um, individuals who are present in the state in violation of our immigration law. And the real the real cash out of that law is that it allows state law enforcement to detain uh, illegal immigrants. <clears throat> And uh, the Department of Justice has now sued Texas over these laws, uh, seeking an injunction against them uh, being enforced. And this will no doubt make its way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, the, these uh, these Texas laws are very similar in many respects to a set of similar similar laws that were passed by Arizona back in 2011, which the Supreme Court uh, struck down uh, in that in that case. And and so so anyways, this is one front. Uh, the the Texas laws SB four. Um, the second front is that uh, at the end of last week, the uh, the the Texas government appears to have uh, physically removed and blocked uh, federal border patrol agents uh, from a from a portion of the border called Eagle Pass. Uh, this is this has been a hot spot for for years and certainly has been in the recent. Uh, in the recent crisis. And just to say a word about the scale of the crisis, perhaps people hear this all of the time, but, um, you know, in 23, uh, the, the uh, Department of Homeland Security said that there were over 3 million encounters with um, illegal immigrants at the border. Now, that's just encounters. They estimate that they only uh, encounter something like seventy-eight percent of the total number of people crossing. So, so the total number is is higher than the uh, number encountered, and of course, you know, in that number there are all of your standard sort of Central American migrants, which uh, we've seen for many years. And then there's um, there were over fifty thousand Chinese nationals encountered crossing the border in twenty three. Uh, a whole range of other people from all over the world. Uh, and in fact, some confirmed cases of spies, suspected terrorists, and all of the rest. So it, people can get bored about the scale of this crisis and hearing about it over and over again, but it it's gotten uh, markedly worse every single year under the Biden administration. And now it would appear that each year we're um, maybe you know probably well above one percent of the nation's population uh, crossing the border.
0: Now is it's does it seem like the, the Texas takeover is having any successes in terms of stemming that tide at all?
4: Uh, this is this is an extremely perilous moment for the Abbott administration. Um it's far too soon to say in on the whole whether or not they're slowing down the tide or if they're just Pushing people to other portions of the of the border, um, there there have still been crossings in Eagle Pass, and th- this is the this is the the just unfortunate reality. Uh, it's a very difficult situation for Abbott because uh, it will be discovered very quickly, probably already has been discovered, uh, that Texas uh, law enforcement will not be shooting, and that that being the case, um, what appears is happening is, uh, you know, Texas law enforcement are trying to maintain the integrity of the border with riot shields and they're getting bull rushed and people who break through the shield wall um, just walk walk right into the country with a grin on their face. Um, so I think it's going to become very, very clear very soon that uh, that actually, Texas is is uh, no better situated than the federal government to stop these people uh, unless they're willing to uh, to use lethal force. Um, however, however, you know that's a that's a perilous proposition because um, you know the, the the entire border, of course, is crawling with reporters and NGOs who are sitting ready to uh, blow up the very first fatality into a sort of a national crisis and flashpoint. And, uh, the, the Abbott administration, no doubt is aware of that. And, uh, you know, and, and it, if that were to occur, it would open up an entirely new and very unpredictable front. Uh, it's a step that I think the Abbott administration is going to be very, uh, hesitant to take.
2: And just to be clear, the reason why you could not, um, successfully stem this tide with detentions rather than with the use of force on the border itself, is that if you detain these migrants, they drop into the DHS system and get released into the interior. Is that correct?
4: Yes, under the the current regime, they do. Um, You know, SB4 and its effect, I, I mean, that does represent an attempt on the part of Texas to actually detain itself. Uh, rather than uh, rather than giving, uh, you know, handing these people over to the beds for detention.
1: Well, these things, it seems to me, are features, not bugs. Because crises and flashpoints are good. That is, if you oppose, if you're it, abstracting it, doesn't necessarily mean this. If yeah. you oppose the current system, crises and flashpoints are good because your enemies have to tamp everyone down, and you only have to have one split everything wide open. So yeah, I don't know. I know nothing about Abbott's thought process or or, or what have you. But the what's unclear, of course, the historical path is that if there's something that the NGOs and reporters can use to gin up a fake crisis, like they did with George Floyd, for example, they're used to people following the approved moral path they set out. But if the people don't, then we get more of the same, which is an affirmative good.
2: Well, the issue here, uh, as you point out, um, Charles, is that there's an opportunity here for Abbott to act if he wants to, right? Uh, he could very clearly make a hard break with the Biden administration on an issue that's probably popular in Texas, right? So, if you, if Abbott is able to garner support sufficient within Texas uh, for taking more extreme actions in the border, he probably could. Um, He has an opportunity to uh, substantially increase his power. Let's put it that way.
1: Right. but I mean, that's kind of an abstraction. It it seems to me the the obvious set of plays is that, uh, as Josh mentioned, the federal government has gone in for an injunction against SB4 and has also gone in, in for an injunction, I believe, against the activity in Eagle Pass. So they either will or they won't get that injunction. And the the sad fact is that if they do get injunction, Abbott will probably comply. But if he didn't comply, it, it, yes, it, I mean, in a sense, it would increase his power within Texas. But that just spins the question forward. Because if he fails to comply, then the federal government's next obvious play, yes. unless they're complete losers, is to arrest Abbott. Um, well,
2: that's, you know. that's correct. You're setting up an escalating confrontation. Right. That's, a uh, that's right.
1: <laughs>
2: and the, the question is whether uh, Abbott they all uh, are prepared for that confrontation, whether this is the right ground to make that confrontation on all of those issues. I think it's fair to say that uh, the crisis at the border is certainly a favorable ground for Abbott to take that, that confrontation on compared to some of the other options that that exist confronting the federal government. Um, But certainly it's a non-trivial issue uh, to make the choice to escalate a confrontation
1: with the U S feds. Is Abbott a lawyer by background?
0: Yes. Probably,
1: Right. don't know. Right, so yes. that happen because lawyers by their very nature are, and by their training are, will not do such a thing. I would be shocked if Abbott doesn't, doesn't back down. That's unfortunate, ah well.
0: It's a CYA Basically. business.
1: Basically, I mean, but it's also like, lawyers self-select for risk aversion and that's reinforced in, in their training and so on. I don't know what his yeah. background is, but it'd be, sh- and he probably surrounds himself with lawyers. So unfortunately, we're probably not going to get the, get anything good out of this, but yeah, who can tell?
2: Well, I mean, but if, you compar- if, if you compare and contrast to the sovereignty crisis in Western Canada, where, uh, you know, the Western Canadian provinces are dominated by oil tycoons that are, you know, much, much more prepared to exert sovereignty against the federal government, seek confrontation. Um, you know, the, the yeah. character of the people involved is very important. Yes. If Abbott
1: were former
3: military, you'd have the area cleared, and then the press aren't an issue as much. I mean you just turn it into a military operation area and then if something cooks off it's it's more easily contained instead what you've created is 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 a public relations you know it's a politician and a lawyer, but that's the uh we're seeing what the next round of 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 great men need to be is 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 versed in these other areas of conflict.
2: Yeah, Ron, you might remember a couple of years ago that picture of the mounted Texas National Guard uh, chasing people at the border and what that was turned into in the media. Right. You just you just don't want those pictures out there.
1: I, I no. suspect the things like that are getting diminishing returns. That is uh, the the part of the reason I like this, even if. Abbott is unable to hold the course. Every time this happens, we get a little bit stronger because more normal people stop caring. Like we had another George Floyd type thing. I think down very much you could pull off another George, you know, Summer Floyd kind of thing. There's a lot of people would be like, that guy's a scumbag, you know, piss on him. Uh, so we'll see. But I think, you know, as, as Lennon said, the worst a better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well this, this and, is right.
2: This comes down to the question of, do you really care enough? Do you really care about uh, removing the regime or do you just care about being more comfortable? Um, well, sorry, go ahead, Ron. I
1: mean,
0: i As I say, to his credit, Abbott um, did take the step of ejecting the federal um, border enforcement. You know, so there is a sense where even as a cautious lawyer, he's gone farther probably than many expected him to go. So... That's true. You know, and, and so how yeah. far so, you know, you've got you've actually you actually here have two points of conflict. Right. So, you know, you have the, the migrants coming across the border and, you know, there's that sort of sense. OK, one or two migrants. That's a fine thing. So at what point does a flood of migrants become an invasion, but without a military back? You know what I mean? Do they can? And and so do you classify it rather we're being invaded rather than it's just, you know, a group of helpless migrants coming across the border. Um, and then the other side is the conflict with the, with the federal government um, that, you know, the, the, the migrants are, are, are the reason and justification, but the, you have almost two separate conflicts here. And, um, you know, so there is the question of, do you threaten force against the, against the migrants? Like Ron says, just clear the area out, just let them know if somebody comes across the border. You know, this is what is going to happen. And then, you know, you follow through on it if it does, um, which is, I mean, it's ugly, but at least, you know, you do your best to make sure that it, the images aren't being splashed on the television screens.
3: The modern populace has, has little understanding of the difference between regular and irregular forces. And it, that's part of the issue, too. Uh, I, you know, I don't think many of these folks are armed, if any. That's not the issue. It's a, it, but it is, uh, uh, you know, if if it were my deal, uh, the facilitators would be the targets of any force. That's an easier legal argument to make, whereas the people would not detain detention, do what you mm-hmm. need to do there. But the but the facilitators, be they coyotes, uh, verifiable uh, traffickers, drug agents, uh, they would be easy Easily uh, uh, justified legal targets of of lethal or sub lethal uh, uh, force.
0: And that's a good distinction to make, though, too, Ron, because a lot of these people get caught up in these things, you know, and then they're many of them are like sold into slavery once they get here as well, too, right? So that's the other thing. Yes. So they're, they, you know, I mean, they are traveling across the border illegally. There is a certain degree of victim status to them. But many of the facilitators also and the more powerful ones remain on the other side of the border where they're somewhat out of reach, right? And then you get into the whole, do you do the black ops thing, right? Well, as, as, well as, and the, mean, state has,
3: the state has no ability to do that. That's that's where the feds have complete, uh, you know, have the states uh, under their arms, so to speak, or under their, you know, boot is, is you know, you can't even, uh, we patrol the Texas border with aerostats, for instance, mainly. Uh, aerostats, the large balloons that are tethered, the state can't put one of those up because it would have to ask the FAA for permission. So, so you can't fly a drone, obviously, along the border in case it actually, you know, veer, uh, veers off a bit. Now you've got an international incident. Although I don't know what, how how much power Mexico has in, in real terms. So, but this is where the state is. All it has is the ability to police in a police action even if it's national guard it just has these policing capabilities It can't do the next level kind of thing Right. the the bottom
2: line you can't without grabbing substantial sovereignty from the feds you can't confront this issue so either you're either you're going to confront the federal government and say we're we're going to grab sovereignty or you're not and and abbott is right at the edge of that he either there's one decision or the other and and this, this is this is a
4: point I've tried to make in print and, and in other appearances, but the, the Abbott is aided in that effort by very decent hooks in our own political tradition. So he's not inventing this whole cloth. You know, the first thing is, of course, I mean, this is this is the the point of the article that I wrote last week, but just pay attention to what our own political tradition says about what a what a state is. I mean, we we say that states are sovereigns. Um, you know, dual sovereignty in our system with the federal government, um, our political tradition has long recognized their ability to exclude. And this, this concept of having the right to exclude is one of the core features of sovereignty. Um, Scalia, in his dissent in the Arizona case, he literally says, you know, the majority is depriving ta- uh, Arizona of a core aspect of their sovereignty. Um, And so 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 partly, you know, we can point we can tell Abbott, who is a lawyer, we can say, read, just read what we say. And what does that actually mean? What does the sovereign do uh, when uh, someone tries to deprive them of a core aspect of their sovereignty? Right. Just um, so that's one. But then the other one is is specifically on this point, Ron, that you mentioned about, um, you know, causing an incident with Mexico or what have you. Um, th- this one has expressed constitutional language. Um, states generally are not supposed to make war. Um, of course, that we understand why that would be a federal function in general. Um, but I mean, this this has explicit constitutional language that says in, a state cannot make war unless it is being invaded. And so, so the in, this invasion concept has a textual hook in the Constitution, and. I would suggest, I, I suspect that the Abbott administration is, among other things, building a record to support the fact of an invasion, which then, of course, ends up being helpful in lawfare, but also help, helpful with public perception.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I really think you have to, you have to uh, pull not on the U.S. Constitution, but on a deeper and sort of more ancient idea of the responsibility of a sovereign right? A sovereign has the responsibility to provide law and order to his citizens. And if the federal government fails to fulfill its responsibility as a sovereign, somebody else, either you're just going to suffer or somebody else is going to grab that, that baton and run with it. So I I agree.
4: I agree with that observation, but I would say that to the extent that you can make that observation and, um, dress it in hooks from our own political tradition, the Constitution and our political history,
2: you're on high. There's some value in there.
4: Popular constitutionalism in America remains extremely powerful with public perception.
1: I think one of the problems that we face here is that it's extremely difficult to predict what the federal government will do because of the incompetence and stupidity of the people they're at. That is, historically, you could look and say, Richard Nixon and the people who surrounded him, and you could, I don't know what it would be necessarily not being an expert on that era, but you could probably say, these people know ABC, they say XYZ, therefore the result is likely to be PDQ. Right now, it's yeah. just a grab bag of pickup up sticks, right? If Abbott gives the finger to some, some judicial decision, it, it, the federal government could do everything from nothing because it's an election year and they'll just, you know, chant white supremacy and use it in ad you know, or they'll like, you know, drop thermobaric bombs. How do you go past? I mean, who knows, right? I mean, could be anything well, I mean, because, you know, some, you know, I, I, I low IQ affirmative action, 24 year old hire decided to do, do it.
2: I mean, well, and Charles <laughs> is right that the federal government hasn't been challenged from the right domestically in a very long time. It's, there's no obvious string of precedence as to what it would do.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'll, well, I, I, of course, I'm an optimistic guy that it'll, it'll do the wrong things and we'll do the wrong things, but... Escalate
0: it. <laughs> it, it it's one of, one of the things, too, I think that that would be helpful, I think, for our listeners, you know, once this gets posted is to maybe um, frame some of this theologically. Because, in a sense, one of the, the problems that many Christians run into is this because they're working in a framework of Kantian ethics and universals, they sort of see, well, thou shalt not kill, thou shall have compassion on the poor, these types of things, and they apply it everywhere equally. And they don't understand something that was very apparent to somebody in even like uh, the first century, all through the Middle Ages, is that different roles in society have a different set of rules. So in a sense, The magistrate operates by a different set of rules than you as the citizen does and has a different set of obligations to you as a citizen, but also to God that you do. Right. And one of those obligations is or the privileges and obligations is the use of violence in the defense of order. And um, what is it that Paul says, you know, to, to maintain, you know, to punish the evildoer. But there's also a sense of protecting the citizen, right? So there's a whole set of series of obligations that on the one hand, our federal government has failed, at, right? Now, Calvin talks about in the Institutes, he talks about how, you know, the Lord declares that the magistrate is a calling from God. So there is this sense that being put in this position can be viewed from, at least from a Calvinist perspective, as a calling from God, so that the use of violence to protect the society, the use of violence to maintain order, um, are all parts of, in a sinful world, the calling of God, right? But there's also an interesting little passage, and this would maybe go to to Abbott's, in, in, in Book 4, Chapter 10, Sections 30 and 31, 32, right at the very end of Calvin's Institutes, where he talks about the lower magistrate, because he has an obligation to his own people, right, That that's God given, has an obligation to rebel against the superior authority. So let's say your account. This is the same
2: fight over what Romans 13 really means that's, that's been going right. on ever since the start of, uh, ever since COVID hit us in 2020.
0: That's and... exactly it. And, and Calvin uh, Calvin argues that the lower magistrate has an obligation to God and his people to rebel against the higher authority when the when the rule of the higher authority is unjust, as in a sense that he, he's a form of judgment against the higher authority. And so he has to put himself in terms of violence and so forth in the way. So this is in a sense from a, you know, for those who are thinking about it from a Christian perspective, this is a very long standing tradition that Calvin draws on of, you know, the lower magistrate having an you know, our rule isn't determined. You don't get your justification from your rule from the people. You get it from God, and so you have an obligation from God to stand up for justice and order, and uprightness in your in your society, in your community. And if the federal government is is preventing that, you have an obligation of God to 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 rebel against that. And that's kind of I think yeah. There's a historic
3: you're... there there. There's very much a historic federalism within uh, the scriptural tradition across across christian traditions especially in orthodoxy and in protestantism i think is fair I, to say
1: i think that's right but it gets I think, back to that
3: locality of the church and bishops or presbyteries in our case
1: but i mean i think in, the, in terms of its applied politics today people just assume without discussion leaving aside the question of specifically who the decision maker is at this the, the levels that we're talking about that the a Christian owes charity to somebody in Venezuela. I don't think that any Christian in America has any obligation whatsoever to anybody in Venezuela, whether to let them come here to help them in any way, way, shape, or form, because there are enormous amounts of people here who need our help. Not a single dollar from America from, from private or public business, should go anywhere else, <laughs> for the most part. I mean,
2: it, well, and I think Charles further to that point, um, most congregations don't actually like they're they have Christian obligations to the people who have been who have been part of their community for generations, and not the people the federal government dropped on their front doorstep yesterday,
1: right? There, well, that's true, but there is a, a wrinkle. There's two wrinkles that I can think of. Let's taking Venezuela because there's lots of Venezuelans. First of all. <laughs> There's the Great Commission. Right. There's there's something to be said for sending missionaries and spending money for missionaries to go to Venezuela or any any other place. And so and that does tend to bleed into local charity and so on. So there is an element of that. And obviously, there's national security things. That is, if we want to spend money on interfacing with the Venezuelan Navy, if Venezuela has a Navy, I assume they do. Uh, maybe that's you know money that gets ultimately spent in in Venezuela. But the, we're continuously, and this is a fault of the British Victorians, the idea, you know, basically where women in the Victorian era decided that the, the poor little children in Africa were the place that uh, Britain should spend all its money rather than the poor little children in Britain. And so we're still living with the results of this basically feminized way of looking at the world. That is, all yeah. the little children need help from all of us and we'll just ignore the local people because really it's more virtuous to help the little black children in Africa.
3: Well, yeah. building upon that, the the missionaries were to go the the distinction that you make is fantastic because it's the missionary's job to go and change the other. It's mm-hmm. not the dollar's job to go and change the other. it's the it's the mission missionary and the pro, the local prophet who gives them uh, you know eyes to see uh, that which can be better, gives them a new vision, so to speak. That's not the job of 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 money, so to speak. Uh, that's the mission.
1: But even the money. Church. Basil would say yeah. you give away most of your money. But Yeah, was, but
3: that's local.
1: Right, exactly. Right? I mean, right. It, mean you're absolved from giving away your money. But well, because it the costs, anything given to Venezuelans necessarily in that context, if you're gonna give away X dollars, comes at the cost of the people here who need it, the Venezuelans should be ignored.
2: And not only is it local, there's an order in Scripture of this: it, first to your family, then to your church, then to your wider community. Um, but until you can say that the the poor within your church are properly cared for, the poor within your family are properly cared for. Gives a black shit horse,
3: yeah. <laughs> better, better, better. A neighbor who is near than a brother who is far away.
0: Yeah, yeah I think you quoted that one earlier today Ron it, it, that's a good passage to to remember that way I think you know as, as this thing gets escalated I mean th- this is really the kind of the hard reality I think that that most of us see but but nobody really want it kind, kind of wants to talk about it is you know is there a way to solve the migration problem or crisis you know without violence? And and that's I think really the big question is is can it be done anymore at this point? And and is you know, is it was it, was the point of this from a propaganda perspective, and, and this is one of the things that Jacques Alule notes, is that you know, you try to put yourself into a position from a propaganda perspective that it doesn't matter what happens, which avenue events go to, that you can successfully propagandize it either way. So if the border stays open, it's great for the regime. If you have to if, if you have to take violent action um, and there is like, even if it's just, you know, you're trying to target it to the the coyotes and, and the people responsible for, for bringing people over, there's going to be collateral damage, right? And so the regime is saying, well, if they, if there's collateral damage, that's good because then we can hammer our enemies on this issue and, and either way it works out well for us, right? And so there has to be, I think, a certain sense where, um, you know, are we, not as just as a nation, but even as a Christian community, prepared to say that we give our blessing to our our, our leaders to do the hard things it needs to do because our own community is suffering and dying here.
2: I also think this, this speaks to the kind of lack of virtue in uh, a lot of American communities. So traditionally, when the sovereign carries out his appropriate function of violence, whether for example, in executing criminals, the whole community gathers together and applies when the hang- and applauds when the hangman's news drops, right? Um, this is a, a totally foreign concept to most people who have been inculturated in the West because they've come to think that exercising violence on behalf of justice is makes you bad, basically.
1: Well, so the and, migration thing is, is unfortunately, there is no universe like the one you outlined where the sovereign, whether that's Trump or the existing regime or what have you, decides to take any significant set of the necessary actions to stop this. Therefore, it's all wrapped up in what might be called the Gordian knot of all the present troubles. And really, the to fix the immigration problem, you either have to, you have one of two possible paths at the highest level. Continued economic reasonable stability and economic instability We're leading all the way potentially, to economic collapse. The latter path is actually a much easier way to solve migration because people will self-select not to hang around in a place where they can't get you know, Gibbs and phones and so on. If the economy manages to stagger on for another 20 years that's the problem because there's no, the regime is less likely to collapse in that scenario. And there's no universe in which anything can actually be done about immigration short of some kind of- Yeah,
2: total standard. regime change.
1: Well, or, or, or perhaps, or perhaps brought on by, or working in parallel with some kind of ascending spiral of the type that is possible, but unlikely with this current situation with Abbott in Texas.
0: Well, it, it's interesting, it's like Black Horse's point that, that he makes about, about violence and justice in society is a good one because one of the things that, that in the West, especially as we have gravitated towards this idea of democracy, the, the marketplace of ideas, is that um, countries can be run like businesses through contract negotiation and so forth. So the idea is that found, we, we have come to think of societies being founded on negotiation and talking rather than on violence right and in a sinful world in order to establish a state you establish state by violence so what we tend to do is the violence that has to happen in society we tend to push it out of sight so rather than giving you know 20 lashes or whatever cutting somebody's hand off or whatever we put people in prison and so we have thousands upon thousands of people millions of people in prisons now um, because we don't want to see violence because we believe that society doesn't isn't founded and maintained by violence. Um, and so there is this sense that that, you know, and it comes down to these inversions with war and so forth, too, that, that Schmidt noted like Klaus you know, war is what happens when talking breaks down. And Schmidt argued that, no, that's completely but that Schwitz has had it completely backwards that, the, you know, the talking that you do in parliament is just another form of verbal combat. Right. And so there's there's all of these ideas and part of it comes down to this idea that we we really have elided the notion that violence in a sinful world is essential to maintaining order and stability in a society. And we just don't believe that anymore. And that's part of why the border crisis escalates is because we think that there is a nonviolent solution. to Well, not not only that, it's the reason why. Uh, someone like Abbott
2: isn't in the position where he would get overwhelming support for the use of force, right? So hypothetically, if Abbott acted tomorrow morning, whatever the regime might or might not do, he would not get overwhelming support from the people of Texas, right? Uh, And the reason he would not get overwhelming support from the people of Texas is that there's a substantial portion uh, of Western populations that have been enculturated to believe that violence under any circumstances is inherently wrong.
0: Yeah. As opposed to your king being given this responsibility by God. And this is why you vest it with a limited group of people, right? So now they have obligation to God and they've been given the authority to, to use violence. And so there's this place for it, but it's contained right in society. And that's in a sense, uh, you you might almost call it a measure of grace that the state, Contains violence, so that the rest of the people can live without it. If, if that absolutely.
3: makes sense. Absolutely, no, absolutely. Because you don't. What you don't want. What is. What is not Christian, and what we we would call chaos, is everyone having to reestablish their own private borders by force every day. Uh, you know that that right. is chaos. That right. well, the libertarian paradise, I guess. But.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the problem is there is no way from here to there. That is from here, meaning where we are here, to there, meaning the the ordered hierarchy of the lesser and greater magistrates that does not lead through that chaos. That's correct, yes. Oh, and, and, uh, so the, so what? that's what we're going to get, because the, the the scenario in which the people of Texas do support Abbott is when they don't know where, where the next meal for their children is coming from, and these people are the problem, uh, or the people that have come in the past 50 years are the problem, or whatever, that's when you're going to get the people who support the violence, and in fact, are going to be engaging in the violence themselves, really not caring at all what Abbott does, because that's the way it works. I mean, that, that there's no universe in which we get back to the correct enculturation, as the black horse correctly uh, says, without going down further first, because you, I make this point all the time, but the, 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 it's a common error, I think, among people on the right, uh, not among this group, but that, that somehow there's this like great reservoir of virtue among people who are not on the left just waiting to be tapped. I mean, I hate to break into the world, but there is no great reservoir of virtue. It has to be re And the only way to do that is through mass violence. There's some period of mass violence. I mean, I don't like that, but, you know, there
0: you go. Well, and that's that's exactly it, you know. And and we were joking before we came on air, you know. And and I think it's 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 useful, maybe to even just to encapsulate this, just to get the audience thinking about it, you know. But you, we talk about you know the, the Christian case for machine gunning immigrants, right? And and so, but that that sort of frames it. It really gets you thinking about like what are the conditions necessary to have to really deal with this, right? Is it economic, as Charles saying, or do like just like you hear some of these stories of people who live in border communities where their lives are completely intolerable, you know, and you know, how far does this kind of chaos, even if people are still putting food on the table, where just their quality of life has diminished to the point of saying, listen, we just can't live like this anymore. And you, and something needs to be done. And eventually you're going to have like vigilantes. If, If the government won't do it, we will take it. You know, a magistrate will rise up and claim that authority and 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 do something about it, and then you're into the case of like warlords. It's Like, you know, I'll do something about it because I can protect this small principality here. And
1: one might say shampoo warlords.
0: <laughs> like, uh,
3: absolutely.
0: Well, we we heard about that in the Guardian that they were arising. Well, I, I hear that. It's it's the coming thing. I, I don't know anything about this person. It's a. But I hear it's this. a
3: very uh, it's a very clean and sweet smelling warlord.
0: <laughs> there will be no bo. Oh my god, the shampoo of warlords troops. Yeah, and, and the hair yeah. will be soft and fabulous. Will be-
3: <laughs> Getting back to <laughs> Abbott really quick, uh it, you know, he did order back in uh October the retaking of Fronten Island, uh, which was the disputed island with Mexico in the Rio Grande that was hosting uh operational two operate uh, operational units of two cartels who were both smuggling drugs and people over the border, and without going to the feds, he used uh, the special ops uh, part of the Texas Rangers to go and take the island. I was unaware of this until I just doing, you know, a little background for for our stream today, Uh, so I'm actually encouraged that, you know, this is the kind of thing that can be done, that he has in his back pocket. Um,
2: So I'm a little more optimistic. I think it's it's important to note, like confronting the federal government indirectly on this issue is one of the best, compared to all of the other potential cases for governors confronting the US federal government. This is one of the areas where they're going to have the most strength in both popular support and support among the kind of local business elite that tend to support uh, state governors, so you know if you're going to be optimistic about a confrontation, this is this is one to be relatively optimistic about.
4: Yeah, and I, I think the other the other optimistic case that I would make here is, you know, I don't think anybody here is overly enamored with Abbott, but at the same time, Abbott throughout the course of of his governorship has proven um, responsive to political trends in his state. And I would say that with these very modest steps that he's taken so far, the outpouring of acclaim, both within Texas and then nationally, has been very, very strong. So I, I, you know, I think the, the optimistic case is that Abbott will find kind of increasing levels of acclaim for his actions where he's actually stepping in and acting like, like a sovereign. And that he will he will like that and do more of it is essentially.
3: Oh, do we lose Josh?
1: Well, I mean, I'm always fond of quoting what Cicero said about Julius Caesar, which is that Caesar was a man of supreme daring hardened to every danger. <laughs> yes. I don't think Abbott Abbott is that. Well people can surprise you, right? And you, maybe you we'll wake up one day and then that, and that'll be Abbott. Um but you need that guy in order to 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 deal adequately with a to mount a sustained and capable challenge to the regime.
5: Another another angle of it too, to kind of marry comments from both Charles and Kryptos is that you have the illusion of violence from the general public sphere, but that is coupled with this Gordian knot that has generally, the approach most seem to have taken in the past few decades is thinking, well, if we, if we add a couple more side knots, maybe the whole thing can eventually come undone. You untie a Gordian knot with a sword. That's the only way you untie it. And what the sword, lethal, sublethal force um, uh, applied by the state of Texas, what it might come to display would be the regime's tendency or willingness to bend the sword unto states before it does so unto foreign actors. And so you have the implication of, oh, well, Abbott, he can't challenge the feds because then the feds might... And it's a fill in the blank, but it's a fill in the blank where everyone substitutes, well, they have F-16s and they have nuclear missiles and the feds can do whatever they want, blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of the point from the propaganda angle is that you are forcing by intensifying the conflict. What you eventually can do if you can manage the optics of it is force the more public realization of the private knowledge by many on the right that the regime is more inclined to apply violence towards its supposed enemies than its supposed friends because the regime has a corrupted allocation of affection, morally speaking. The regime is more inclined, generally speaking, towards Central and South American nationals than the sovereignty and safety of Texans. And pushing the violence envelope can be an opportunity, I think, to cause a greater number of the general, the common man, to see that and to realize it. Where if you, you know, got out the, got out the sandwich board and stood on the intersection and tried to claim it, the people are gonna lock you up and they're gonna stick you in the padded room because that's insane. You can't say the feds want to. Well, no, but you can make the feds show you that, and if you push them. What can, what what does the federal retakeover of Eagle Pass look like if the injunction doesn't go through? Uh, what do they have to fall back on? They have special operations, they have the military, they have violence, they have lethal force. And what the, the comedy, in a sense, the irony of the elision of violence from the common sphere is that everyone still kind of knows that it undermines everything because it's baked into humanity. So everyone is waiting for, oh, you know, the feds, they'll just have to clean up Texas. They could. That's the point, is that they have violence. And we've written it off for the feds and for the states to begin to reclaim that. They leave the regime powers few means of response that I think Mm -hmm. do not, to use some of my preferred language. It forces what is communicated by the negative space into the positive space. You don't have to say, well, by implication, the regime thinks X. You can just see it with your eyes then.
0: That's a really, really good point, Paul. Um, And, uh, you know, that, yeah, because you're right. Because once Abbott has stepped in and he controls that border spot, even if the injunction goes against him, he can just basically say to them, okay, make me. And then they have a choice of like, so then the federal government is put into that position of doing violence against other Americans to protect immigrants from another country.
3: Absolutely.
0: That's That's a a really, yeah. Yeah. So then you're basically, you're, you're really highlighting that inversion and, 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 as, they, as, as the left says, you know, you're forcing the contradictions and exposing the contradictions that the federal government is really acting against the inter- interest of its own citizens to protect foreigners. And you do that by forcing them to use violence against Americans.
6: So one of the other things I think is interesting in this, and thank you for, for allowing me to come on, especially a little bit late. I was supposed to be on the chat, but That's something in my fine, real life came up, is that what we're seeing is something that, you know, people on the right have been hoping for for quite some time, which is essentially that the interest of local elite would diverge with the national elite. You know, in the conversation about secession, which is something that has been big on the right for a long time, you know, especially kind of like post the 1990s, there's always been that idea of, well, we need to force kind of a principal agent problem, you know, where the sort of the mid-level administrators of the empire basically say, oh, It is not in my interest. I do not keep on to power by going along with what the Empire Central, right, the capital city wants me to do. So what's interesting is that I think that DeSantis has done a very good job of completely and totally discrediting himself over the last several months. I'm not trying to get into that specifically. But what he did do is is kind of start this trend. We're very early in the the COVID pandemic, there was sort of this uh, kind of, back and forth game between he and Abbott trying to be the, quote unquote, best Republican. And I think that that's a positive thing, even if DeSantis himself has sort of of embarrassed himself. And what I think that we've seen is recently there was a big headline that came out that basically says, now there are more Hispanics and South Americans than white people in Texas. I I don't mean to make a racial point in this, but that does mean that If you look at the demographic that tends to vote for people like Abbott, they are being engineered out of the Texas polity, right? This is very clearly a goal of liberal NGOs because Texas is a big state with a lot of electoral college votes. They want it to become a blue state. They want basically what happened to California to happen to Texas. And I think that someone like Abbott, who in his heart of heart is essentially a chamber of commerce Republican, realizes that if Texas becomes California, Greg Abbott is no longer the governor. And so I don't mean to lionize the man personally, but I do think that aligning the interests of politicians with our interests, right? Turning the relationship between the right wing and Republicans into a client patron relationship where they need to give us things we want instead of just saying, well, we won't be as bad as the Democrats is a positive thing. So don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to you know, overly... You know, look at this as an overly optimistic situation because taken as a whole, you know, the last few years of immigration have been disastrous. But at the same time, this is an encouraging sign from Republicans because if you talk to the guys at uh, American Renaissance, the V-Dare, con- or the VDARE guys who have been strongly anti-immigration for 30 years, they've been trying to get this to be a real issue for decades. And it wasn't until Trump initially, and now we're seeing on a local scale it actually being enforced at, I mean, the point of the gun, I think that it's a a tactical victory if if nothing else.
1: No, I think that's totally right. I mean, this is the heighten the contradictions phase of our great turning, as it were. (laughs) We're just waiting to see what the result of the heightening is.
0: Yeah, that's very good. I I think we're getting close, unless there's something really, really essential. We've been, I know Jay, you just joined a few minutes ago, unfortunately. We've been at this for almost an hour now. So unless somebody has a couple of closing remarks that they want to throw, it's been really good um, chat all around.
1: I'm just I'm just glad that I'm alive. <laughs> and my, I, back in the 80s, everything was so boring. Now we have excitement. I mean, I, I'm sarcastic because the 80s were awesome. But, you know. Uh, they, they were.
0: Uh,
1: but you, you, the, the fact that, you know, this is one of the, the taglines I have on my site is, Thomas Paine, who, of course, Paine is not necessarily someone the right typically goes for, though many of the Revolutionary War radicals have been looking better lately, let's put it that way. But he said, I had a quote, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day so that my children may have peace. And this reflection, well applied, is sufficient to call every man to duty. So, you know, might as well get it over with. So I'm glad we're seeing some heightening of the contradictions. Hold the mandate
6: off. Yeah, well, there's something to that. And I realize it's a little bit rude to show up late to a conversation and then monopolize it. It's okay. Not at all. There's something to that in the idea that so far, the complaints of the right more broadly have gone completely unaddressed. And a big part of that is that when you're playing Cassandra, you know, when you're saying 30 years from now, this will cause a problem, that's a much, that's a very difficult sell. You know, because someone says like, oh, well, I can have 30 years of, you know, year over year profits, my 401k will triple, my home will be worth a million dollars. What do I care? You know, essentially this has been what baby boomers have said, but now it is, Hey, we've been telling you things are going to go poorly and they're going poorly right now in your town. And so that's a much easier hand of cards to play and don't get me wrong. I'd much rather be in a situation where we don't have the last 30, 40 years of decline, but we don't have that choice. And, essentially, this is a very strong position to place our beliefs as a solution to an elite class that is out of answers. I mean, very clearly, the, the liberal regime, the liberal establishment cannot answer these questions. Now, someone might say they don't want to, which I think is is true. But there are segments of the elite that need these questions answered. And their traditional collection of think tanks and academics are not providing them solutions, and so uh, I, again, I think it's a it's a point for cautious optimism.
1: But uh, it's, it's, I get all my my hottest takes from the American Enterprise Institute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking Charles? No, it's a little no. early. It's <laughs> a federal holiday. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, hey, it's afternoon, so we're all good, right? We're, yeah, but it, this is this is an interesting point that Jay makes, and you know for me, the things began to turn in 2008. That was when the blinders began to come off. and You begin to ask, start asking these questions and realizing that, like, you know, I think all those crazy socialists were right about NAFTA, you know, like in Canada, the NDPers, right? The the New Democratic Party, all these crazy union bosses and NDPers were right about NAFTA. And once you admit that to yourself, um, you, you begin to, you know, the journey starts to escalate and then COVID hit, of course. And you know, now you realize that the only people doing any kind of real intellectual work are on the right. And, mm-hmm. and not just like the, the center, right, but, you know, the deep, you know, I guess we call it, I mean, it doesn't seem that radical when you're here. But from somebody who's not here, it's, it's, it looks, we look like a frightening bunch. But, um, you know, this, this is really the groundwork. We're laying the groundwork for, in a sense, what comes next? And how do we preserve as much of what we have in what comes next and, and shepherd people through that because it's coming and we can see why and all of these people who were saying so now we're paying attention to them and they were they've been saying it for 150 years now many of them you know so yeah it, it, it is like let's just say it, it's it's exciting times to be alive but at the same time very nerve-wracking because we all have kids and I have like four grandkids and they you know we hopefully they have futures right and that's kind of what we'd like to we'd like to wish for them very true very true well thank you i'm going to unless somebody has something really pressing to throw in one more things i'm going to end the recording and then we can say our goodbyes hey.